This is Paul. Welcome to the Things I Didn't Learn in School podcast. For those of you that are newer to these conversations, the podcasts are one of three things that Still Press puts out. There's also a weekly essay that comes out on Substack. You can sign up for either the free or the paid versions on my website, paulpodolsky.com. And there's also a book, Raising a Thief, and another one, Master Minion. And if you enjoy these conversations, I think that you will enjoy the books and the essays as well. And so with that, thanks for listening, and let's get into our conversation. My guest is uh, Senator Chris Murphy. I'm delighted to have you on. Well, good to be with you. First thing is, listening to you once before, reading your story, your upbringing is a little bit well-disguised. I can discern that dad is a lawyer, mom grew up in housing projects, and grandma and grandpa had a big influence on you, but our childhood had a big influence on all of us. So could you share with the listeners a little bit what was it like growing up? Where did the call from public service come from? You clearly have a very strong moral compass. Describe that a little bit, if you would. Yeah, I mean, I'm a you know, proud uh, you know, child of Connecticut, grew up in Wethersfield right outside of Hartford. You know, had a pretty idyllic upbringing. Um, my father is a lawyer with the same law firm from the time he graduated law school until his retirement in Hartford. My mom um, taught on and off, stayed home to raise us when we were very young. Um, and so I had no complaints, right? I had everything I needed. But my mother, as, as you mentioned, you know, grew up under very different circumstances. She grew up in public housing. Her dad was in and out of jobs habitually, sort of bankruptcy, chasing them at all times. And she just raised us um, with this sort of constant idea that we were just lucky, right? I mean, I didn't do anything to deserve the roof over my head or three meals on the table every day. I was just lucky. And that other kids like her didn't have that. And all I knew was that I was supposed to do something with my life, either full time or in my free time, to try to make sure that more people um, had what I had. And so that's uh, really the kind of defining ethic of my upbringing was feeling really um, lucky, feeling really grateful for what I had and feeling like I was supposed to take that uh, bounty and do something with it that made my community uh, better. So um, I think there's a straight line from those values to how I ended up in public service. I'd say yes and, yes and no. A lot of people grow up with that. And then you were clearly committed to public service very early. And then these stories about you in high school being committed to it, you know, in your book, mapping out the process. So I'd say that is more unusual. There's a lot of different ways that that sense of, of serving could manifest. Was there anything, any political history in your family? When did those ideas first really start to resonate? No, my, you know, my father always sort of talks about this as a recessive gene because, <laughs> uh, you know, not only is there no history of political activism in my family, my parents were both registered Republicans. That's interesting. Yeah, although you know, sort of classic Rockefeller Republicans, they split their tickets all the time. And these days they don't vote for very many Republicans at all. Um, but I was a I was a organizer at birth, right? I mean, I was that kid who organized the touch football games, right? I sat on my phone, you know, my rotary phone every Saturday morning for three hours, dialing through a list of kids to turn them out to play football. When they imposed a dress code at my high school, I was the one that organized all the kids to go to the teacher meetings to protest. I mean, I just loved that stuff. I was good at it. I liked organizing people towards a goal. 
And at some point in high school, I think as a teenager, I learned from a friend that there was this whole world in which all you did was organize people around (laughs) collective tasks and, 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 and efforts to make the world better politics. And so once I discovered that I could actually make a living trying to organize and improve the lot of my community, it was pretty natural for me to sort of pursue that particular path. So let's talk about the change in the Republican Party some. So your parents grew up with one notion, and this goes all the way through to your efforts on gun control, too. Something has really shifted uh, in the Republican Party, uh, it seems to me, uh, fundamentally. Uh, last night, uh, I don't know that you saw it, uh, Jim Comey, who's been a guest in the show, was on CNN, and he said he wasn't sure what values the Republican Party was now representing. You're in the chamber with these people each day. Ted Cruz is a colleague of yours. Um, describe what A, what's going on, and B, what is that like? Yeah, um, two big questions, right? Um, uh, yeah, my, my father's inflection point, interestingly, was um, Hurricane Katrina. Interesting. So he was a major donor to George W. Bush um, and believed in sort of this compassionate conservative of, of, of the first Bush. But then when he sort of watched the callousness mm. of Bush and the broader Republican Party at the devastation in New Orleans, mm. um, that for him was the moment when he sort of said, I think this party has left me. It was that plus the Iraq war, which just seemed totally foolish and unstrategic to him. Um, but it is true. You know, this is a party that has become kind of devoid of ideas. The only idea left in the Republican Party is just the destruction of government. Um, and, you know, that really creates a, a narrowing of potential agreement between Republicans and Democrats. Um, I don't know where it comes from, but I do think at the source, at the root, is you know, a growing anger amongst the American public at their lot in life. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of folks out there today who feel like they're working really hard. They're playing by the rules. And the American dream is further and further away. That The technology is moving so fast that it's out of their control, that their the places that they live in are less healthy, that their kids seem more trouble. Um, and when you get sort of that upset at the place you're in, You start looking for answers. Sometimes you start looking for scapegoats. And the Republican Party has sort of filled in that gap, right? Has said, well, the government is to blame or immigrants or Muslims or gay kids. And I think they are just channeling a lot of that anger into unhelpful places. Um, But that anger is real. And so, you know, I'm spending a lot of time trying to understand why people are feeling this way and how do you sort of channel that anxiety, which is real, mm-hmm. into more productive places than it's being channeled by Donald Trump uh, right now. And there's a strange issue with perspective, which you talk about in, in your book, and we'll, we'll turn to the gun violence, which is it all depends on what time span you look at this on. In other words, yes, the anxiety is real. Yes, the flattening of wages and the opioid epidemic and all those things and the, the Trumpism that have all that stuff is real. And if you look at a 100-year perspective or a two- or a 300-year perspective, uh, in terms of economic well-being, the system has done unbelievable things. And you talk about narrowing the issue from all social issues, just the gun issue, 
you talk about the long path. Yes, you know, homicidal violence is much less frequently than it was, and it's terrifying what's going on. So both things are true. As a policymaker, how do you wrestle with that, particularly when you're trying to reach across the aisle or deal with the districts that are heavily Republican in Connecticut? Like, how, how do you sort through? Yeah, it's a big issue, right? The, the, the narrow point I make in my book is that while things feel really bad today with respect to violence in America, the broad sort of 2,000-year trajectory is that we are becoming much less violent, right? You are much less subject to violence today in America than you were in America 3,000 years ago or in Europe um, 500 years ago. And so while this is a very troubling moment, we should have faith that human beings have shown this capacity to order ourselves in a way that ultimately makes us safer. I, I think this, this broader question of, 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 kind of quality of life and happiness is a little bit more complicated because I think for a long time, sort of starting in the industrial age, the, the rapid march of technology was unquestionably adding to our quality of life, right? We were living longer. We were more in communication with people. Um, we were making more money. Um, and so I think technology for, you know, a good 150 years was just adding to quality of life. I think we are at a moment where it is boomeranging, where the technology is becoming so complicated and is moving at a pace that is so dizzying with the benefits being captured by such a small segment of society that the advances are not actually adding to quality of life. Um, maybe in some respects, it's a marginal ad, but in some places, it's actually detracting from quality of life, social media being a perfect example, right? I think social media has taken more from us than it has given mm. us. Um, and that's a really uncomfortable conversation because we just got used to technology being a net quality of life ad. I think it's a, a more difficult conversation today requiring much more sort of heavy government intervention to make sure that from here on out, we get the best of technology and not the worst of it, that, that, that technology works for us, that we don't work for it. Um, so I think that's that's part of what is really angering Americans today. Makes sense. It also seems to be a crazy complicated thing, A, to even understand, and then B, to devise policy. In other words, when I think about you know creative destruction broadly uh, conceived, it's so unpredictable where it goes and how it how it changes. Like the, the classic example I think about is something, and we're not diving down a little bit on this issue, but step back and just look at it from a policymaker's perspective. The iPhones and Waze. Like when the iPhones were invented, I never imagined that it would lead to a traffic navigation thing. And so it's so, but lo and behold, it works pretty darn well. And so it's so unexpected when the technology develops, where actually it goes. So, and you can see investors getting crushed trying to make sense of it. So it must be even trickier from a policymaker perspective to try to weigh those gray areas. How, how do you think about it? Yeah. And you know, it, it, it's so complicated because it is not just simply this question of the most obvious negative consequences of technological development, social media sort of being the primary example of that, right? We know exactly how social media is hurting our kids, um, whether it's addicting them to screens or feeding them really dangerous content. Um, we can see it in real time. But as AI, you know, starts to 
replace basic human functions like exploration and creativity and conversation with machine created content, that's a really more, that's a tougher conversation because it, it is true that there's something really important in exploration, right? In working for a result. And AI within the next five to 10 years is going to deliver us all sorts of stuff without any work, right? Microsoft advertises ChatGPT as removing from you the hassle of writing your child's graduation speech, right? You're having a party for your kid. You have to say something about the meaning of that moment. And now a robot's going to do it for you. How wonderful, right? Mm. It's not. It's robbing from us, taking from us a core mm. human function. Um, and so that's the really difficult part is um, what are we losing about sort of essential humanity through this next leap of technology? And what role does government have to play in reserving for human beings some of our core and key functions? That sounds like a really hard and maybe impossible question right. for government to answer right. because like we can't even pay the country's bills. Um, <laughs> but, I, but I think we'd be doing a disservice if we didn't sort of look at technologies and things like AI in, in, in that vein. So let's step away from AI to something more, more concrete, which is the gun regulation, really the yeah. topic of your book. So I remember when people first started getting shot in numbers. And the question I asked myself is, how many people have to get slaughtered before we change the rules? And my answer was completely wrong. I was like, well, after this happens a couple of times, people will prevail. And they'll try to put these and then see what they did in Australia after there's a mass shooting and there was broad agreement, blah, blah. And you go through this in your book that basically regulation, based on your evidence, it works really well. If you contrast the homicide deaths in uh, Connecticut versus Florida, same place, and there's porous gun laws, but different within that has a huge impact. Yet, you're in there in the trenches. You're clearly for the reasons you describe in the book, very attached to this intellectually and emotionally. And oh my God, is it slow, the process. How do you wrestle with this just as somebody who believes in the process but is also watching it? And what is your message to voters that progress is made but the slaughtering continues and it's terrifying? Yeah, I wish there were these sort of moments of epiphany in American politics where something so horrific happens that it changes everything overnight. But especially when you're dealing with really powerful vested political interests, um, that's not how it works. And so in 2013, 2012, when Sandy Hook happens and Congress starts to debate gun laws, you know, the, the gun lobby was at its peak. It was the strongest political interest in the country. And what we realized is that we needed to build a political movement that was going to be eventually just as strong as the gun industry. We've, we've done that now. We are now essentially at parity where they have about as much power as we have. And I think we're entering a period of time in which our side, the side trying to protect our kids, will win more consistently. But what makes me feel good about this trajectory is that it's not unfamiliar. Um, from the time that Emmett Till's casket body was revealed to the nation to the point where we actually were passing meaningful civil rights laws was a decade and a half. Jim Brady's death gave rise to sort of the relatively modern anti-gun violence movement, but it was still, again, almost 15 years before we passed the first real change 
in gun laws, the marriage equality movement, right, from uh, the, the genesis to the legalization of gay marriage, that's 40 years. So these great social change movements, they take a time, they take time, but people tend to be so convinced by the righteousness of the cause that they don't give up. And I think that ours, the anti-gun violence movement, is one of those great social change movements. Is it harder when the technology itself is changing quickly too? In other words, one of the points you make in the book is just the power of the weapons and uh, reloading, et cetera, all that stuff accelerates it. So unlike gay rights or, or civil rights, you're not dealing with that moving target as well. Is that, is, that a, is that a footnote or is that something that's important? It's more than a footnote, but you know these... Weapons have been powerful for a long time. Frankly, the AR-15, I mean, that that style weapon has been with us for a very, very long time. It was the industry that thought it was too irresponsible um, to sell to the public and made a self-regulating choice to, um, to not put it on the shelves. And as the percentage of Households that had handguns and rifles started going down and the industry sort of was looking at a crisis, you know, 50% of households having a gun in 1980. By 2005, only about 35% of households have a gun. They start selling this really powerful weapon. So I think the weapons have always been pretty powerful. It's just that the marketing decisions and the ethics of the industry have fundamentally changed. And you make your argument in the book that it's a relatively niche group of the American public that is heavily armed. And so it's sort of one of these examples where a small group, highly organized and extremely passionate, is having a disproportionate weight. Right. I mean, you've got uh, 3% of Americans that own 50% of the weapons. Um, That's a little different now. I mean, we have had a a buying spree in the last few years of firearms. It's really remarkable. So when I came into Congress in uh, 2007, about uh, 300,000 guns were being sold every year in this country, at least through the background check system. Today, that number is 3 million. I mean, in 15 years, you've had a tenfold increase in the number of weapons that are being sold. That's pretty remarkable. But, you know, it is also true that, you know, the changes I'm talking about, universal background checks, for instance, there's a wildly popular like 80, 90 percent of Americans think that everybody should go through a background check before they buy a gun. Like nothing's that popular. Like grandma isn't that popular. Like kittens aren't that popular. And yet getting it through Congress is like molasses. Yeah, because there is this um, this myth, this mythology that if you cross the gun lobby, you'll pay a price. Now, that mythology used to exist both on the Republican side and the Democratic side. Democrats now don't believe in that mythology. We, in fact, believe the opposite. We believe that we win races if we pass stronger gun laws. But in the Republican Party, they still believe that myth. And we're testing it now because 15 Senate Republicans voted for the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, the first bill of substance changing American gun laws passed last summer, opposed by the NRA. Every major gun rights group opposed it. And those 15 Republicans, you know, I, I don't think are paying a price. I don't think they regret their vote. And so my belief, my theory is that once we show that the mythology is just that, mythology, both on the left and the right, that we'll be able to pass a lot more of this. Let's just briefly touch on Trumpism. And is your sense that that is waning? Because if you look at the polling data, it doesn't suggest that. This is not directly related to the guns question, but I'm just talking about the shift in your Republican colleagues on that issue. It shows some flexibility there. 
yet the polling data and Trump endorsed people did much worse in the elections. The polling data still shows broad support. Yeah, I mean, Trump was never evangelical on this issue of guns. He never did the right thing, but you know, he always entertained a conversation around it. Um, but the broader problem here, I think, is the one we talked about at the beginning, which is that you know whether or not the phenomenon is surrounding Donald Trump. So long as there is this sort of broad dislocation in the American public, so long as there are so many people who are feeling unhappy, anxious, disconnected, sort of devoid of meaning, um, it's room for demagogues to thrive. Um, this is how democracies fall, is when um, you know, the entire economy becomes, the entire sort of civilization becomes overly commercialized, where people um, sort of lose attachment to the place and to their community. So if you don't start raising people's incomes and moderating the influence of technology and making places, local communities healthier, whether it's Donald Trump or somebody else, I think we're going to still have a problem with demagogues. There's a pretty powerful scene in your book that on the day of the Sandy Hook shootings, you were supposed to take your son, who was very much looking forward to New York City. And on the one hand, you know, being a senator of the United States, obviously an unbelievable privilege, fascinating job, sorts of it, like any job, are incredibly frustrating. The family dynamic and balance seems potentially brutal. Talk a little bit about that, if you, you know, your your wag of that. What do you think of that? How does it, what's it, what's it like on the inside negotiating something like that? Yeah, there's, I mean, there's a reason why um, there are few senators with young kids. It's, you know, it's a hard it's a hard life, not just because you're away from your family half the time, you know, no matter where you locate your family. Um, you know, but, you know, these days, you know, especially as your kids get to be the age mine are, teen, preteen, um, you know, they unfortunately can't avoid, you know, all of the, the arrows and the mudslinging that happens. And that's part. Um, this isn't actually that hard for me because I just prioritize my family. So I just make sure that I'm spending time with my kids. Um, I don't do the cocktail party circuit in Washington, D.C. I reserve time on the weekends. I just you know, know that I'm going to only have kids under the age of 18 for so long and I better make them my priority. So, you know, sometimes I get grief for that because, you know, I don't um, keep the schedule that every politician keeps in Connecticut because I just want to spend time with uh, with them. And I frankly think that makes me a better Senator, I think, you know, being grounded in my kid's life um, and making them my priority, I think just connects me to the people I represent who make their families uh, the, the priority. And it makes me you know, better able to make good choices on their behalf. That, that makes a lot of sense. And, and also, I would say, though, that it's do you think it makes it harder to get stuff done in the Senate? And I don't say this as any sort of uh, political insider, but I remember reading the Caro books on Lyndon Johnson, that this was the, the guys, it, everything, the socialization, all that stuff was around trying to get things through the Senate. And he was, and I assume that he was a terrible father and all of that. So there was a huge cost in that. And it doesn't seem like there's any easy answer. Or or do you think that the Senate's changed and it's more business-like now than it was, say, when Johnson was such a force? Yeah, I think there's a lot of things that have changed that have um, uh, that have incentivized polarization um, in our politics. Um, I, there are a popular um, theory is that 
the, the amount of time that fundraising and political activities take and the fact that more members don't live in Washington, live back in their states has caused um, you know, this polarization to, to accelerate. I don't think that's actually a, it's an aggravating factor, but I don't think it's um, you know, one of the most important reasons why we don't get as much stuff done as we, uh, as we should. There are also a lot of opportunities for people like me to come together. So I introduced a, a sort of the toughest bill regulating social media and giving parents rights when it comes to their kids' uses of social media. And I wrote that bill with three parents of young kids in the Senate. Interesting. Um, you know, one of them is Tom Cotton. Tom Cotton and I agree on very little um, when it comes to policy, but we agree on the fact that parents should have a bigger role in deciding when their kids get on social media. And that agreement comes from our perspective as parents. So, you know, sometimes this experience can kind of, uh, can, can sort of solve divides. Solve divides. And when you're working with somebody like Tom Cotton, and you, and it's wonderful that you have that similarity overlap. Do you guys ever joke about the areas where you guys just viscerally disagree fundamentally on like, you know, what is day and what is night in terms of public policy? Or do you just skate past that? There's only, no, there's only a hundred of us, right? So, I mean, you, you have, must, you have to find a way to work with people you, you know, disagree with. And listen, you know, after the insurrection, that became harder, right? The people who've led the insurrection literally tried to take down our government. It's really hard to decide to work with those people. But, you know, just because I have a disagreement with Tom Cotton about you know, policing or Medicare, Social Security, it can't prevent me from working with him on something like protecting our kids because, um, you know, ultimately, you know, this, 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 this body I live in is designed to force you to make bedfellows with strange partners. The podcast is called Things I Didn't Learn in School. I've asked a, a lot of different range of guests this. And the question is, is the biggest lessons you've learned by living, your case in public policy that you weren't taught in school, what are they? Yeah, that there's a difference between knowledge and wisdom. There comes a point at which you are not just collecting knowledge any longer. You're trying to figure out what to do with that knowledge to make the right decision. Um, and I think for a lot of us that get sort of put on this treadmill, just work hard, work hard, work hard, do more, do more, do more, and the results will come. There's truth to that for a while. But then at some point you reach a position in which you just have to be a good decision maker. And sometimes that involves stepping away from the work, right? Sometimes that involves perspective. Um, and I think it took me a long time to realize that. Um, and so now I try to find ways to give myself that perspective to be able to just stop, back up, think about everything that happened that day and try to come to terms with the decisions I need to make that are best for the country, for my state, um, for my priorities. And um, I certainly didn't learn that in school. Uh, in school, I just worked harder and worked harder and worked harder. Now I realize I've got to find a way to step back and find a space for that. That's a, that's a beautiful one. Thanks so much for coming on Things I Didn't Learn at School. Thanks for uh, having me on. 
thank you for listening to today's episode. We're genuinely touched by all the support. If you want to see more of this type of content, sign up to my Substack on paulpodolsky.com and become a paid subscriber. That helps support the team. Uh, you could also submit a review to Apple Podcasts, which draws other listeners to this. If you have any questions, you can email me, paul at paulpodolsky.com and follow me on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. Thanks so much. Today's podcast was produced and edited by Dave Manahan.